You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So today we're in Mark uh, chapter 7, and we've been in this journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, and we honestly have taken uh, a break for a few weeks as we moved into our new building and and spent some time talking about gospel culture and hearing from another church plant that we're partnering with. And then last week, uh, Mike Luganbill uh, got us back into uh, the Gospel of Mark and into Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for for an extended period of time now, uh, but particularly headed to Easter. And And on Easter, I'm going to be preaching a message out of Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, uh, particularly looking at Jesus's invitation to come and follow him, to take up his cross, take up the cross and follow him, to die to ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. Um, And in doing so, I want us to to look at a passage that occurs before Easter, but helps us to see the meaning and the significance of Easter. And it shows us the invitation that Jesus gives to everyone uh, to follow him, an invitation uh, that points us to the cross and that points us to Jesus's resurrection and and calls us to find the life in following him. And so both an encouragement to build up uh, believers, but also an encouragement. Uh, to uh, invite those who may not know Christ to come uh, to know him and follow him. Um, and so uh, really excited about that in somewhat of a unique way. It's not your typical Easter uh, message, and yet it's at the very heart of what Easter is all about, the death and resurrection of Christ and the invitation to follow the risen Christ. Um, and so, But today, uh, that's not where we're at. Today we're in Mark chapter 7. And uh, you heard uh, the story uh, of the Syrophoenician woman's faith and the healing of a deaf man. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, seeing someone that you found both uh, offensive and disgusting, and yet at the same time leaving absolutely stunned at what they did or what they said. Um, I kind of feel that way with Jesus in this passage. There's this part of me when I read Mark chapter 7, especially verses 24 through 30, at first glance, if you read it like me, you might be a little offended uh, and put yourself in the Syrophoenician woman's shoes and be like, that must have stung a little bit to, uh, to seemingly be referenced uh, as a dog. And how do we make sense of that with the compassion and mercy of Christ that we know so much of throughout the Gospels? Uh, and then uh, basically uh, we see Jesus give a man a wet willy um, as he heals the man uh, who is deaf and mute uh, as he puts some spit on his hand and puts it on his tongue and then sticks his fingers in his ears is somewhat of a strange uh, occurrence, uh, no matter how you look at it. Um, And uh, we'll understand it in its context in just a moment. So bear with me as I have a little bit of fun. Uh, And yet at the end of it all, we read in Mark chapter seven, verse 37, that the people were astonished beyond measure and said he has done all things well. It's amazing that you can see Jesus do these things that confound us and that we're like, wait, what is he saying? What did he say to that woman? And and then wait a second, what what did he what did he do to that man? And what does that mean? And wow, Jesus, you have done all things well. It it reminds me we've been working through the gospel of Mark. And as we continue to work through the gospel of Mark, here's here's what I continue to see time and time again. There's more to Jesus than we've yet to comprehend. There's always more to Jesus than we've yet to comprehend. 
This is why believers, we, we come back to the scriptures uh, as the regular rhythm of our life to put ourselves in the word of God, to read it and reflect on it. If you're not a believer, but you're interested in Christianity, it's why I would invite you to, to read the Bible, to read uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Consider Jesus. Consider what they say about him and consider who he is and, uh, and, and what the scriptures teach concerning Jesus. Uh, it's profound to see and consider um, the, the picture and the portrait of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And time and time again, as we read the Gospels, we come away with a bigger view of who Jesus is, a deeper understanding of who he is and, and what he's done. There's more to Jesus than we've yet to comprehend. And the more we understand him, the more our faith grows and the more we see, uh, come to see him and understand him, the more we see our need for him and the more we see his provision for us. Um, and so today, what we see about Jesus uh, in these interactions is actually two lessons about Jesus's mission and two lessons about faith that I want us to see. Um, and so first, I want us to see the, the first lesson about Jesus's mission in verses 24 through 37. And it's this. It's that Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to Israel so that salvation could be extended to the nations. Now, at first glance, it may not look that that is what is taking place, but let me unpack it for us. It says that Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was known, and uh, this area was known as a Gentile region. And apparently, because of the popularity of Jesus and his ministry, and the opposition of, uh, of Jesus's ministry that we've seen throughout, um, <clears throat> we we come to uh, this this passage and. We see that Jesus wants to get away. Uh, he wants to get away uh, and to, to rest, apparently to remain hidden, it says in verse 24. Perhaps to have some time to, to teach his disciples, to interact with his disciples. He's already come off a disagreement with the Pharisees and a, or a kind of a, a conversation conflict with the Pharisees regarding what defiles a person. That it's not the outside that defiles a person, but it's our heart that is defiled and in need uh, of restoration, in need of cleansing. Um, and so we can pay attention to the, the externals only, but neglect the internal. And, and Jesus correctly teaches us what defiles a person and then what is the source of our cleansing. That we would look outside of ourselves uh, to God for, for cleansing. And now he comes away and it says that just as he had become popular in Judea and the surrounding areas, even as he goes outside of it into this region, this primarily Gentile region, his popularity has extended there as well. Um, and we see uh, that he has come to a place uh, where people know about him and know what is happening um, and know uh, what what is going to um, uh, what Jesus has done and, and perhaps what he might do because he's come to their region. And so it says uh, that immediately in verse 25, there is a woman who had a little girl who had an unclean spirit. She heard of Jesus and she came and fell down at his feet. And it tells us a little bit about this woman. And it makes sense in light of the context. It says she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was begging Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
Um, the, the people of Tyre and the Syrophoenician people uh, were, were at odds with, uh, with Israelites and with the Jews of this day. And in fact, the, um, the Israelites and the Jews of the day would have considered the Syrophoenicians some of their worst enemies in the, in the region. And so uh, it's very surprising to see Jesus have um, to withdrawn uh, to this area to find some, some respite. But, but he does. And as we often see, when Jesus withdraws to various places, it's no accident, though he looks to get away, he often finds himself interacting with people. Now, the, the context for what's happened here is important. In the previous section, as we mentioned, we saw Jesus describes what defiles a person. That's not what's on the, on the outside. It's the internal. Now he's interacting with this Gentile woman that everybody in Israel would have said, especially any good rabbi, that, that these people are unclean. And Jesus is showing us once more that there's something different than what they had thought. It wasn't just the externals that defiled a person. It was primarily the internal. And there are people that are unclean and untouchable. Uh, but but we, we see, just like he said in the previous verse, it's the heart that needs to be addressed. And what can make a person clean? What can wash away our sin? Faith. To believe and to trust in Jesus. And, uh, and we see that here in this passage. <coughs> and... As Jesus withdraws, uh, we, we see here his interaction isn't just an interaction with this woman, but it's a lesson about his mission. Turn to Matthew 15 with me, if you would. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a tickle in my throat. Matthew chapter 15. <coughs> it's helpful as we read the Gospels <coughs> to read them often in comparison with the other one gospel account to read them in comparison with the other gospel accounts. We have four gospels that tell the same story from four different <coughs> perspectives. And in Matthew 15, we see the same interaction and conversation. And yet Matthew gives us a little bit of a, a fuller background picture of what's taking place. It says in Matthew 15, verse 21, Jesus went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon, like we saw. And it says that a Canaanite woman came out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. You see, she had heard and knew who Jesus was. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But here we see Jesus's silence. It says that he did not answer her a word. <coughs> but instead, <he's coughs> he was silent. And then she goes from Jesus apparently to the disciples and is begging the disciples. And you can imagine the disciples are, are somewhat annoyed and they say, send her away for she is crying out after us. And here he gives us the hint and the, the, the point that Jesus is clarifying his mission. He says that I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and knelt before him, saying, not persisting in her plea, Lord, help me. And here we see Jesus's interaction with her. And the reason I point to this background context from Matthew 15, as well as in our own context of Mark chapter 7, is it's helpful for us to understand the, what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is here is making a statement concerning his mission, that he's come first to the house of Israel. Uh, come first to fulfill God's promises to Israel. And, and look at his interaction back in Mark chapter 7. Verse 27, Jesus says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Thank you. 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let the children be fed first. So Jesus uses a picture of a household table to make a point. And in doing this, the first thing that meets my eye and that probably meets your eye as you read this passage is, wow, Jesus calls this woman seemingly a dog. What do we make of this? Jesus looked out over the people who were hungry and suffering in in Mark chapter uh, 5, and it says that he had compassion on them. The demoniac ran up to him uh, with a legion of demons, and Jesus had compassion and and took time to, to heal him. Here is this woman, a Gentile woman who comes to him, whose daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, begging and pleading for his help. And Jesus first says nothing, then says he's come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is Jesus being offensive? Is Jesus playing on a stereotype? I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is using using a common idea to make an important point concerning his mission and doing so in the form of a parable. And, And what he says is, and I want you to look first at what it says in verse 20. uh, 27, the word first, let the children be fed first, Jesus says. And then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And the implication is that the children at the table are to be fed first before the animal in the house is to be fed. Now, Jesus is doing something that no doubt he was aware of. The the Gentiles were called um, by the Jews dogs. And there's a particular word that was used at that time in the Greek that uh, referred to like a mangy dog, like a a ravenous dog that would run the streets, you know, that you would think of like, oh, that dog's got rabies. Like that's just a loose dog, you know, that's running the streets. Um, There's a particular term for this here. Jesus uses a uh, a lesser term that is almost uh, more commonly used to refer to like a personal pet. Um, And and you might like to quibble whether you call me a stray dog or a poodle. Uh, You know, a dog is a dog. Right. But um, but Jesus is not playing on that stereotype. He's he's making a point. He's telling a parable to make a point and doing so in a way that no doubt this woman would have said. You know, she and she's basically going to say in response to Jesus, you're right. I have no right to be at the table, Jesus, as a Gentile. I am not privy to the promises of God to Israel. I have no right to be at the table. But but Jesus, as you said, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Though the children are fed first, there is an abundance of food that falls to the ground. And oh, for, for God's mercy, how food falls to the ground with little children. Um, if you have a little child, you know that there will be food that falls to the ground. Um, it is uh, not only true because of gravity, uh, but true because of the nature of a child, <laughs> that the food in the hand will not make it to the mouth, but the food in the hand will find the floor. Um, and all of the parents said, Amen. 
Uh, and, and Jesus is saying here that he came first to fulfill the promises to Israel. That's what he means when he said he came for the house of Israel. He came to fulfill God's promises to Abraham and to, to David and to Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment, the perfect righteous fulfillment of the Mosaic law. Jesus is the true king promised to David who would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who would bring blessing to all nations, but to do so, he must first come to Israel and then through Israel, a redeemed Israel, trusting in Jesus, the Messiah, the gospel will go to all nations. And it is all throughout Jesus's ministry that he shows a priority to Israel, but he gives a preview of the mission that's to come. The priority to Israel, but the mission to the nations that's to come. And it's not surprising that in all the gospel accounts, at the resurrection, they end with the mission being go take the forgiveness of sins through Jesus's death and resurrection. This good news, the gospel and proclaim it among where the nations, the, 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 the promise of God to draw the nations to himself takes us all the way back to the promise to Abraham. When God said to Abraham from your offspring, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And you, through Israel, you will bring a blessing to all nations. The problem is, and I can't unpack this in full detail, but if you want a short summary of the Old Testament, the promises God made to Israel are true and will not fail, but the people of Israel failed to live up to their part of the covenant promises. But Jesus stands in the place of Israel as their representative and he fulfills all of the promises of God to Israel. He obeys where Israel disobeyed. He succeeds where Israel failed. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true offspring of Abraham and the true offspring of David. He has come to rescue Israel from their sins and to bring about God's promises, not only to the people of Israel, but to all the nations. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's giving us this understanding of his mission. And in doing so, we also learn a lesson about faith through this Syrophoenician woman. She is the first person to accurately understand one of Jesus's parables in the Gospels, as far as I can count. Jesus's own disciples who followed him often were hard and slow to understand what Jesus was teaching. When he taught, they would say things like, and I appreciate this because they're like, you know, Jesus, unpack that for me. Unpack what you meant by the whole seed thing and the soils and unpack for me what you meant by that mustard seed and the growing and the, the wheat and the tares and how all that plays out. And Jesus, could you explain that a little bit more to me? They, they often did not understand and they often failed to put themselves in the story. Uh, they, they failed uh, to put themselves in, uh, in the place. It's just like the Pharisees. They also had this problem. When Jesus told the parable of the, uh, the, two, the father with the two sons, the older brother and the younger brother, he told the story for the Pharisees. He told the story because they were the older brother. They got mad that the father welcomed the younger brother back. If you know the story, the man had two sons and the older son wanted his inheritance and he or the younger son wanted his inheritance. And he said basically to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And the father gives him his money and he goes and he spends it on anything he wanted, on all of his pleasures. And he bankrupts himself and he finds himself in a pig pen, uh, the very place that a good Jew would not find themselves. And he, he comes to his senses and says, I would have a better life in my father's house as a servant. I'll get up 
up and go to my father and ask him to take me back as a servant. And the father runs when he sees him from afar and embraces him and welcomes him home, not as a servant, but as a son and throws a party. And the older brother is upset and angry because the father has shown grace to this younger brother has shown mercy to this younger brother when all along he's been uh, doing his work and doing his part and the father hasn't thrown him a party. And we begin to see that the story is showing us that that Jesus is pleading with the older brother not to count in his own righteousness, but to trust in the mercy and the grace of the father, as well as to to everyone else who finds themselves like the younger younger brother who runs and spends all that they have and wastes all that they have chasing the, the pleasures of this life and the lust of the flesh. To come to the realization that we're never too far, never too far gone to run back to the Father whose arms are open to us. The problem with the parable is people weren't willing to put themselves in it. They wanted to be the one like the Father who chose who to bless and not to bless. The Pharisees didn't want to see themselves as the older brother. Everyone else did not want to see themselves perhaps as the the younger brother. We we don't put ourselves in the, the words that Jesus says, but the Syrophoenician woman put herself in the parable and she said, you're right, Lord. I'm not going to question your will as to, how, as to the order for whom you came to the Jew first and also the Greek, as Paul would say in Romans 1, that the gospel comes to the Jew first and then also to the Gentiles. She does not question God's will, nor does she plead on the basis of her merits. She does not say to Jesus, you do not understand. I know who you are. I've, I've heard that you're the Lord, uh, that you're the son of David. I know the promises of Israel. I've lived a decent life or maybe I haven't done everything right, but I'm here now, Jesus. But she doesn't plead on her merits. And we learn this lesson about faith. The plea of faith is that faith pleads with God on the basis of his character, not on the basis of our merit. She says, I'm unworthy, Jesus, but I know that you're able. I'm unworthy, Jesus, but I know that you're good. That's how we plead with God in the face of our own crisis and trials. I know I'm undeserving God, but I trust that you're good and I trust that you're able. So I ask and I keep asking and I keep asking and I keep asking until you answer. Not because you you have to answer me, not because I am worthy of an answer, because God, all I know to do is plead with you. She, like Jacob, wrestles with the Lord and is blessed. It teaches us not to grow weary in our pleas to God, and it teaches us the right basis for our pleas with God. That faith pleads with God on the basis of his character, not on the basis of our merit. And you see Jesus's response. He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Verse 30 confirms she went home and she found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. She knew that Jesus was good and she knew that Jesus was able. And so she pleaded with him on the basis of his character. Do you plead with God on the basis of his character? I don't fault you if you sometimes question God's will because I do as well. I wrestle and don't don't understand why God's doing what he's doing and the timing that he's doing it. Sometimes I can find myself thinking to God, I've done X. Shouldn't you do this for me, God? Pleading with God on the basis of my merits. But time and time again, the scriptures teach us to come to God in humility, to come to God in dependence, 
knowing that it's our dependence and our need that brings us to him and that we plead with him on his character. So maybe there's something you're pleading and praying to God for right now. Don't forget on what basis you can confidently keep on pleading with him. Not your merits, but his character. The second thing I want us to see about Jesus's mission is found in verses 31 through 37. And it's that Jesus came to bring about God's promised salvation that encompasses the renewal of all things. It says after this that Jesus then returned from that region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, and he's back in the Decapolis. If you remember back in Mark chapter 5, Jesus came to the Decapolis and healed a man who had a legion of demons. And the Decapolis, like Tyre and Sidon, is known as a Gentile region. And so once more, Jesus is showing us here that the, the future blessing of God that's coming to the nations is breaking into the present through his ministry. Uh, The kingdom of God has arrived. We're we're getting a sense of what's to come through the life and ministry of Jesus. And and though Jesus has been laser focused, he will spend the vast majority of his time and his ministry in in uh, in Judah and in Galilee. Um, And and yet here he's showing us this glimpse of the universal uh, extent and scope of the kingdom of God, of the gospel mission to the nations. And he's going to interact once more with a man who's a Gentile. And it says they brought to him a man who was deaf. And had a speech impediment. Uh, most likely, uh, scholars, as I have read on this, think that perhaps this man had a stroke. And due to that, it uh, hindered his um, ability to, to hear and speak. Or somehow, his ability to, to not hear impacted his ability to not speak. And the translation had a speech impediment. You might see uh, that he was... Um, uh, it was basically, it's a unique term that refers to uh, hard to hard to speak. Um, and so not totally unable to speak, but difficulty communicating. Uh, and it's a, a word that's used only once in the New Testament. Um, and, and, and Mark uses it here to describe this man. And it says that, that this man's friends brought him to Jesus. It's, it's like in Mark chapter 2, when the man who was paralyzed, his four friends carried him on a mat and dropped them down below Jesus. We, we don't know who these people are, but time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see that there are people who come to Jesus and plead with him like the Syrophoenician woman. And then there are other people who are needy that have some good friends who bring them to Jesus because they believe that Jesus is the one who can help them. Uh, I think there's a, uh, there's a subtle message and a reminder for all of us. Get to Jesus yourself if you can. But also don't forget to be the kind of friends who go unnamed, but who nonetheless take their friends to Jesus. And these friends take this man to Jesus and they beg Jesus and they uh, beg him to lay his hands on him, which would be a common uh, thing in healing a person. And, and it says that in the midst of this crowd that was gathered, somehow Jesus pulls this man to his side so as to not make a spectacle of him. And it, and it says, I, I joked about this earlier, but you, you see the intentionality and the purpose with which Jesus did this. Jesus could merely have spoken a word and done it. Jesus merely could have touched a man and healed him. Jesus was touched once by a woman who had uh, unclean uh, blood flow and, and she was healed instantaneously. There's all kinds of ways that Jesus apparently could heal. And yet here Jesus, I think, compassionately and graciously helps this man who, who could not hear and who could not speak. And it says that he took him aside and he put his fingers into his ears 
And he spit uh, on his hand and touched his tongue. Spittle was known commonly to be used for medicinal purposes. Uh, I don't understand that. Why? For my doctor friends, I'm glad that we figured out that that's probably not the right way to go about it. Um, but uh, there, there it is. Uh, and it says, after doing this, he touched his tongue. Uh, still uh, don't understand. And then looking up to heaven, here we see where Jesus looks in the face of this man's need. He looks to God the Father. And it says he sighed. And he said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. It's a translation of the Aramaic into the Greek. It's almost a, a word that's barely utterable, it seems, uh, that Jesus makes as you, as you read it. Especially if you weren't expecting to read it, except 10 seconds ago and you had to read it. It's this moment, you know, Victor knows what I'm talking about. You get to the word and you're like, what do I say? Is it and, and, and just trying to get it out, I feel like it makes it more authentic if you just kind of fumble through it. It must have been what it, hurt, what it sounded like to many people. And it says in that moment, his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus heals this man, meeting him in his needs, in his moment of need, graciously touching him, making him aware to his, uh, his presence and what he was about to do. Jesus doesn't just look at this guy and he, and he knows in 30 seconds this dude who can't hear and speak is about to speak and, and talk. And he's not like, he's not like, all right, let's just get it over with. All right, here we go. Now he, he meets this man in, his, in this moment. He touches his ear. He touches his tongue. He, he helps him understand what is about to take place and he heals him. And we see here this picture often as we do through Jesus's miracles of what the kingdom to come is going to look like in Jesus's ministry. He does not do miracles all the time. He doesn't just heal anyone. He, he doesn't often just even want other people to see what's happening. You know, sometimes we think, yes, Jesus did miracles to prove who he was to others. And, and they do prove who he was to others. But, but also I think Jesus is at times, he tries not to make a spectacle of it. He doesn't just walk into town and he's like, all right, let's see what kind of miracle we can do. Uh, you over there, sick guy in the back, come up here, come up here, meet Johnny. Johnny can't talk and Johnny can't hear. He doesn't even know what I'm saying right now. I'm about to heal him. He doesn't do that. Needy people meet him and Jesus pulls them aside and, and he heals them. And in doing so, he's showing us the picture of full salvation to come, the kingdom of God to come, the full restoration to come. And here I think this is a picture showing us that Jesus has come to bring salvation that includes the restoration of all things, including our whole self. He, he does not just say to the man's ears or to the man's mouth, be open, but he says to the man, be open. He speaks to his whole person and he, he, he himself is going to be restored, not just in, in, in sight and in speech, but in his own ability to communicate and interact and be a part of his community. And it's a picture that takes us back to Isaiah 35. I mentioned the word that's translated had a speech impediment. It's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. And it's also only used once in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And you know it's used here in Mark 7. And it's also used in Isaiah 35. Flip over to Isaiah 35 if you would. In Isaiah 35... It's in the context of God pronouncing judgment, honestly, amount about to Israel for their hard-heartedness and rebellion. But then in the midst of judgment, God speaks a word of salvation to those who trust in the Lord. 
He said, in the wilderness, in the midst of judgment, you're going to see the glory of the Lord. Verse 2, the majesty of our God. So strengthen your hands and make firm, feeble knees. Behold, God is going to come. He will come and save you, it says. And look what it says in verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute. That's the word. The mute will sing for joy. This picture of salvation in the midst of of judgment that Isaiah 35 talks about was to come when the Messiah came. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah who's come to bring about the redemption that God talks about in Isaiah 35. The redemption of all things, the restoration of all things. And we see a glimpse of it in Jesus healing this man. And it reminds us of what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We just talked about in our equip class at 915 before the service. The new heavens and the new earth. And in, in heaven, we will, we will see no more tears. We will see no more sorrow, no more sickness. The mute, the deaf, the lame. They'll speak, they'll hear, they'll dance, they'll sing. It's a picture of restoration. All that is broken by sin will be made new. Jesus is showing us and Jesus is telling us. And in the midst of this lesson, when we look to Jesus, we we see this second lesson about faith that I want us to conclude with. It's that faith looks to God in the face of the brokenness of sin. And trust that he alone can bring restoration. Faith looks to God in the face of the brokenness of sin. And trust that he alone can bring restoration. Go back to Jesus' actions uh, that we talked about in verses 33 through, through 34. Here in this moment, we get this uh, glimpse, one of the rare glimpses of the internal working of Jesus' heart. Here we get this sense of what's taking place in Jesus' heart as he interacts with this deaf man. I personally uh, have found great uh, encouragement in this passage. Uh, Some of you know this, but uh, recently, about a year ago, I started to get ringing in my ear. Uh, Tinnitus is what it's called. And it's rather maddening at times not to have silence. Uh, in your life, Um, but I've mostly adjusted to it, but I figured I should get it checked out because I didn't know what it was. And uh, much to my surprise, at first they said, you have some hearing loss, come back in six months. We'll check it out some more. Uh, And they told me, uh, you may have a hard time hearing softer voices and female voices. And I, that was what the doctor said. And I said, can you say that again? Um, I need my wife to know that that's what the doctor uh, said would happen Um, because that indeed happens in our home. And, um, and so I came back and they said, well, your loss, hearing loss has, uh, has continued to decline. We would recommend that you get hearing aids. And so sometime in the coming months, I'll be receiving my, my first uh, hearing aids. Um, not what I expected uh, at the age of uh, 35 uh, to, to get hearing aids. And by, by no means am I deaf um, fully and, and, and not even in the way that this man is. Um, I assure you, I still know how to talk. Um, and sometimes too long. Uh, but um, <clears throat> but I, I, I'm once, remi- once more reminded of just the broken world that we live in, the broken bodies that we have. We'll outlive our, our eyes. We'll outlive perhaps our ears. At some point, our brain might stop. Our heart might stop. Our lungs might stop. Our kidneys might stop. Our liver might stop. And maybe something else. But all of us live in a broken world and with broken bodies waiting to be restored. 
And when Jesus looks at the brokenness of this world, it's not this man's sin, but it's the sin-stained world that this man lives in and, and this broken body that he has because of living on this side of eternity. He looks at this man and he sighs. I don't know if you've looked at the brokenness of sin before and sighed, but I believe that there is a sigh of faith that Jesus teaches us about here. Jesus looks at this man and he sighs. He sees the brokenness of sin. He sees what it's brought about. He knows what he's come to do. He knows he's come to bring about restoration, a restoration that will include his death and his, res- and his resurrection. And in this moment, he sees the brokenness of this man's body and the brokenness of the sin of this world and the reason that he came to this earth and he sighs. He groans that we aren't yet at new creation. He groans that we are still on the way to the cross. He groans that things, all things are not made new yet. But he knows that he's come to bring about all things new. I love what Ray Orland says. He said, Christianity is not flattering. Christianity is Christ restoring people broken beyond self-repair. Christ Restoring people broken beyond self-repair. This man could not fix himself. He had good friends that took him to Jesus, but they couldn't fix him. The religious systems of the day couldn't fix him, but Jesus could fix him. And Jesus will one day fix all of our broken bodies and will one day fix all that's broken in this world by sin. He shows us that he's good to do it. He promises that it will come to pass in his eternal kingdom. One day our sighs will give way to songs of joy. I want you to go back to Isaiah 35 because it's not the only connection uh, that we mentioned earlier. In Isaiah 35, it it talks about how the, the deaf will hear and the mute will sing. But it also goes on to say this, when the salvation of the Lord comes in Isaiah 35, it says this at the end of Isaiah 35. It says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They've been scattered, but they'll return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And and watch this. And sorrow and sighing shall flee. Sorrow and sighing shall flee. Our sighs will give way to songs of joy. Why? Because Jesus comes to save the undeserving and those who are broken beyond fixing through their own efforts. We'll sing songs of joy because the son that was at the table was willing to come to become the one who hung upon the cross so that the dogs underneath the table might feast as well. We'll sing songs of joy because God will open deaf ears and he will open mute tongues and blind eyes and hard hearts and they'll sing for him and to him and love him and and see him and behold him and hear him. We, we go through life, I think, looking for joy in all the wrong places. Jesus is saying, real joy is found in me. Real joy comes now knowing that, that Jesus can fix us and will meet us in our need and will one day make all things new. And it says as they looked at what Jesus had done, Jesus had to tell them not to tell anyone, but often as he did, they told everyone more zealously. And verse 37 says they were astonished beyond measure because he had done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear 
and a mute speak. Our sighs will turn to songs of joy. When he comes, Isaiah 35 says, the ransomed of the Lord. Those who have been redeemed, who have trusted in Christ. Our sighs will give way to songs of joy because Jesus died and he rose again and he's coming again. That's our hope. So we too can look at the brokenness of sin in our own lives, of our own bodies, of this world, and we too can sigh. We too can feel the weight of brokenness and know that God hasn't left us alone in it. I want to end our our time today by a little bit of interactive response time. As we think about Jesus being the one who has done all things well, there's still more to understand of who Jesus is. I, I want us to consider the songs of joy that we sing, what they declare, and for us today to declare that Jesus indeed has done all things well. Well, will you, will you turn your eyes to the screen? I'll, I'll read where it says pastor, and I want you to read together in unison, and I'll do it with you uh, because we'll all say this together. Consider these words that are of songs that we sing, how they help us to recall who Jesus is and what he's done, and how they help us to know that he has done all things well. So we, like the Syrophoenician woman, can plead with him on the basis of his character. And we, like Jesus teaches us in his healing of this deaf and mute man, we can sigh at the face of brokenness of sin, knowing that Jesus is the one who makes all things new. Jesus is our mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. He does all things well. Say this with me. Jesus is our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. He does all things well. Jesus is the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. He does all things well. Say this with me. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. He does all things well. Jesus is our fount of every blessing. Streams of mercy never ceasing. He does all things well. In Christ alone our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. He does all things well. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. He is the one who conquered the grave. From every nation and tongue He has made us a kingdom and priest to God. He has done all things well. Say this with me, church. Jesus will keep us and come again to dwell with us. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He has done all things well. Hasn't he done all things well? Isn't he worthy? He is. Let's say so together.